You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. We recently spent a bit of time looking at what it means to be born again. The necessity of the new birth, the evidence that you have been born again, and the benefits of the new birth. The conclusion we drew from scripture is that unless you are born again, you are not a Christian. Not at all. Not in any way, in any shape, or in any form. If you're not born again, you can be a very nice person, you can be a very loving person, you can be a very sacrificial person, you can even be a very religious person. But if you're not born again, heaven is beyond your reach. You need more than being nice, you need more than religious devotion. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of heaven. That was John chapter 3, verses 3 and 5. There's only one way to enter the kingdom of heaven then, and, that, and to, to receive eternal life. And this morning, we want to look at how that is. And at first glance, it looks quite strange. So let's get the context by going to our passage this morning, starting with John chapter 3, verse 7, where Jesus said, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Our old friend Nicodemus, you'll recall, went to Jesus at night to find out more about who Jesus was, where he'd come from and what he was up to. But Jesus wasn't interested in casual conversation. He wasn't interested in catching up over a cup of coffee. Jesus got straight to the heart of the matter, even before Nicodemus realised there was a matter to get to the heart of. Jesus said to him, you must be born again. You can imagine Nicodemus responding, well, that's crazy talk, Jesus. How can I possibly do that? I can't get back into my mother's womb. I'm too big. I'm too old. How can these things be? There's no question, I think, that the new birth is a difficult experience to understand. 
Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes and you don't see where it comes from or where it's going. It's mysterious. The new birth regeneration is like that wind. We can't see it, we can't see its source, we can't see its destination. So it's hard for us to fault poor old Nicodemus for not understanding what Jesus was talking about because it's pretty bewildering stuff. And as we saw, Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus' biggest problem wasn't his lack of intellectual knowledge. Nicodemus knew the scriptures inside out. He could probably have recited the whole of his Bible from start to finish. That was his job as the teacher of Israel, to know the Bible inside out. So it wasn't intellectual knowledge that Nicodemus lacked, and neither is that our biggest problem. That should be encouraging to all of us. We don't need to have a high IQ to be born again. We don't need to be well educated. We don't even need to understand what Jesus is talking about, actually. What Nicodemus needed and what we need is not more knowledge. In fact, what we need is deceptively simple. And it's so simple that most people ignore it or reject it or laugh at it. What we need is to believe. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Later on in this chapter, John 3, he writes, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. That's a tragedy. Someone has come from heaven with the message of salvation, yet no one receives his testimony. You do not believe, Jesus said. That's not a problem of knowledge or intellect. That's a problem of will. That's a choice to reject truth. Don't let that be your problem. Even a small child can receive and believe truth. You don't need to be a well-educated adult. In fact, you don't even need to be able to read to believe. You just need to make the choice to believe. And when you've done that, when you have believed, the scriptures begin to open up to you. The Bible, the word of God, must be understood spiritually, Paul tells us in, I think it was First or Second Corinthians. It must be understood through the eyes of faith. And the only way to have a spiritual understanding of the scriptures is to have a new, a new heart, a new spirit, a new birth. That's where Nicodemus' greatest problem lie. For all his knowledge and learning, he wasn't yet born again. He was not yet spiritual. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit, Jesus told him. One day, 
Nicodemus would be born again if what we read of him later on in, in John's Gospel is any indication, but not yet. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus about the plan of salvation that was hatched in heaven before creation. No one was there to hear that plan except the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. The one who descended from heaven was sent by God to reveal and to accomplish this plan of salvation. Since the concept of being born again is so difficult for Nicodemus to understand, and it is for us too, Jesus proceeds to explain it. But his explanation might seem just as mysterious as all this talk about being born again. Jesus explains it by saying, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, how does that explain the new birth? For years I've read this, and I can't, couldn't count how many times I've read this, and I've never really made a connection with what came before this and what comes after this. We need to go back to the Old Testament passage that Jesus is referencing there to gain understanding. And interestingly, it comes from the book of Numbers. Now, if you took a survey of the most popular books of the Bible, I think John would be up there, Psalms would probably be up there, 1 Corinthians with a chapter of love would have to be up there. But some of the most boring books of the Bible... Numbers would be very close to number one, I think. Maybe only beaten by Leviticus. It'd be a <laughs> photo finish between those two, if you did a survey. But interestingly, one of the, from one of the most boring books of the Bible comes one of the most fascinating passages, strange passages, but one of the most fascinating passages for our understanding of what the new birth is all about. So let's set the scene first. Moses had led the people out of Egypt close to 40 years before this event. They'd witnessed the judgment of God on Egypt for keeping them as slaves. Um, They had experienced miraculous protection from death during the first Passover. They'd enjoyed the incredible power of God parting the Red Sea so they could cross over on dry land and drowning the Egyptian army behind them. God had dwelt with them for almost 40 years in a tabernacle, speaking to them, leading them, providing for them. And in all that time, in 40 years, they always had food and water provided for them. Their clothes never wore out. Their shoes never wore out. They must have walked thousands of miles in rocky desert country and their shoes never wore out. It's amazing but they were still not satisfied. So we go to Numbers chapter 21, the passage that Jesus was referring to, and it tells us they travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, and the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against Moses, and oh, sorry, they spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert. Now they've been going for 40 years and they haven't died in the desert yet. There's no bread, there's no water and we detest 
this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelite, sorry, Israelites died. Now, a quick reminder, John pointed out to us when he did a psalm reading not very long ago, that when you see the word Lord in all capitals like that, that's actually the old Hebrew word Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, which means I am or I am that I am, sometimes translated as Jehovah. The New Testament makes clear to us that Yahweh is Jesus Christ. That might just make this passage even more interesting. Yahweh sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against Yahweh and against you. Pray that Yahweh will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And Yahweh said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. They were a pretty miserable lot, these Israelites. They weren't frightened to let their feelings be known. They complained loudly about their lot in life. They complained about God. They complained about Moses. They detested the food that God provided miraculously for them. But that, uh, that should be a warning for us about ingratitude. Now, it says that Yahweh sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Who was it that sent the fiery serpents? The King James translation calls it fiery, not venomous serpents, which may have something to do with the pain of burning of venom through the veins. The NIV puts it, Yahweh sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. It wasn't the devil that sent these snakes, you'll notice. It was the Lord. Sometimes we hear believers and sometimes we're prone to doing it ourselves complain about how the devil is attacking us, how the devil is stopping me following after God's plan, the devil this and the devil that. To be fair, that's what the enemy intends to do. And he will do it as far as God permits him to do it, but only as far as God permits him to do it. The devil is subject to God and cannot do anything unless God gives him permission to do it. But anyway, in this passage, it was God himself, Yahweh, the Lord, who sent the venomous snakes. And he didn't just send them as a warning, He didn't send them to scare the people into silence. He sent them as a punishment. The people had sinned by their hateful ingratitude. And he sent these serpents so many Israelites died. The Israelites were God's chosen people, remember. And yet God sent serpents among them so that many of them died. This is the same God of love that we just read about in John 3.16 It tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. The main point of this story is not to warn us about ingratitude, but we would be wise to make sure we don't slip into that sin.
how quickly we can forget God's faithfulness and his provision for us. This story is a warning that we should take seriously. It must have been terrifying for the Israelites. Put yourself in that situation. The camp infested by snakes. Unless you're Steve Irwin, you probably have no fondness for snakes, especially venomous snakes. It's the stuff of nightmares for most of us. Now we know that snakes in scripture are, mo- are frequently associated with sin. So, it tastes like chicken. The sin tastes like chicken. <laughs> snakes are associated with sin in the Bible. <laughs> snakes are a fitting representation of sin. Here, just like in the Garden of Eden, sin brings death. And it brings it through snakes. Sin always brings death. There's never a time where sin doesn't bring death. It's been that way since Adam was a boy, so to speak. It brought death in the garden. Sin brings death today. Now the solution for their sin, the Israelites, is unusual. It's not something we would expect. It's not something we would come up with ourselves. In fact, we're probably more likely to look at this solution and think it ridiculous, absurd. Who would come up with such a bizarre idea as putting a snake on the pole to cure people. Before we get to what God told them to do, let's consider what God didn't tell them to do. Firstly, God didn't tell them to fight off and kill the deadly serpents. He could have told them to band together and fight them off using whatever means they had available. They could have formed a society for the destruction of deadly serpents. They could have staged sit-ins at the major intersections of the camp, disrupting traffic to bring attention to their cause. But social organisation can never solve the problem of sin. James Montgomery Boyce makes the point that sin is not cured by social organisation. By all means, let us mop the fevered brow, he says. Let us comfort the stricken patient. But the cure for sin's poison doesn't lie in our ability to fight it off. The cure lies elsewhere, as we'll get to shortly. Secondly, of course, even if the people were able to fight off the serpents, which obviously they weren't, that does nothing to help those who had already been bitten. So neither did God tell them to develop an antidote for the venom. There was no medicine they could take to cure themselves. There was no religious ritual, no fasting, no self-denial would cure them. Not meditation, nor a pilgrimage to a holy site would do the job. The fact that they were not told to make a human remedy tells us that there is no human remedy for sin. Thirdly, maybe they could try self-improvement. They could work on improving their character work on their obedience, work on their relationships with others. Moral improvement, self-help, surely that will solve our problem. But again, even if it were possible, which it is not, it would do nothing to help those who are already infected, who are already bitten by the serpents. 
God requires not just improvement for the future, he requires payment for what is past. Moral reformation can never cure us from the effects that are already incurred by the poison of sin. Fourthly, maybe a lucky charm would help them. What if they could get a piece of one of these serpents to protect them? That would help cure the effects of the poison, surely. That would ward off any attacks from the other serpents. Like a lucky rabbit's foot, maybe, which is not so lucky for the poor old rabbit. But but that's the way they tried to deal with sin in the Dark Ages. Relics, trinkets, nails from the cross, dead saints' bones did nothing to deal with the poison of sin then, it will do nothing to deal with the poison of sin today. But we're too educated and sophisticated to be sucked in by such superstition, as if a rabbit's foot or a dead saint's bone could protect us from anything. No, we rather wear a St Christopher medal around our neck or a cross as jewellery. That will protect us, surely. As if. Perhaps we can make some sort of offering to the serpent. But God didn't ask for any payment, you'll notice, in return for healing. He was offered freely to them. Grace is always offered freely. There is no payment we can make for grace. They could have turned to Moses for their healing. They did turn to Moses to ask him to approach the Lord to seek a cure, but they could have used him as an intermediary, just as many might go to a priest today for absolution from their sin. That would have done exactly nothing to cure them. The solution lay beyond Moses. It lay beyond priests. It lay beyond mere mortals. Now, if this happened in the 21st century, we might expect God to tell us to create a society to protect the snakes, to allow snakes to do just what they're created to do. Maybe we could even call this organisation PETS, P-E-T-S, People for the Ethical Treatment of Serpents. (laughs) It wouldn't do anything to help us with the poison of sin that was already killing us, of course, but we could at least feel better about ourselves while we died because we were protecting the snakes. And lastly, interestingly, God didn't tell them to pray. Did you notice that? God didn't tell them to pray. That might be a surprise to us, but there's a necessary step for them to take before their prayer could be effective. Now this absurd solution was that the people came to Moses and said, when we sinned, We sinned when we spoke against Yahweh and against you. Pray that Yahweh will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. They asked the Lord to take the snakes away. That's the obvious first step in dealing with this problem. If we can just get rid of the snakes that are already here, then we'll be safe and we'll be free to help those who have already been bitten. But that wasn't God's solution. The solution God proposed is so ridiculous you can almost hear the people mocking and laughing at the absurdity of it. 
The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Rather than take the serpents away, God's solution was for Moses to fashion a snake out of bronze and lift it up on a pole for the people to look at. What a ridiculous method of dealing with snakes. If you've ever been around snakes, I'm sure you'd realise that doesn't help. Whoever heard such nonsense? How can looking at a model of a snake, not even the snake, but a model of a snake on a pole, possibly cure me of the venom that's burning within me? There is no therapeutic value in a bronze serpent. None. Much less merely looking at a bronze serpent. We might as well watch The Simpsons as a cure for cancer. But the cure was effective. When anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now the story doesn't tell us that the people had to get near to the bronze snake. Doesn't say that they had to touch it. Doesn't say they needed to say any special words or incantations. They didn't even need someone else to help them look. And it also doesn't say they needed to understand why or how to do it. Now, the serpent was lifted up so that those too weak to crawl up and touch it or too close to death to cry out for help could still be healed just by a look. Notice it doesn't even say that they had to great, have great belief that it would work. All they needed to do was look. The weakest glance at the bronze serpent was enough to cure them. I do believe. Help my unbelief. It didn't matter how badly they'd been bitten. It didn't matter how often they'd been bitten. It didn't matter whether they could see clearly or whether their vision was almost gone. It didn't matter if they were close enough to get a good view or if it was so far away it was a mere speck on the horizon. It didn't matter how sick they were or how close to death they were. All that was necessary was to look. They could look with their very dying breath, but as long as they looked, they lived. Look to the serpent on the pole and live. What a simple command. Even a child can look. Have you ever noticed that God doesn't tend to do things the way we would do them? What seems foolishness to us is often the wisdom of God. Well, this is a fascinating story. We only properly understand it when we see it pointing forward to Jesus Christ. To Jesus Christ being raised up on a cross, which is exactly what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There are several parallels between the story in Numbers 21 and the crucifixion of Jesus. There are several parallels between that passage and our situation. There are some points of contrast. There's some points of fulfilment 
that in Christ that far exceeds what the story in number tw- Numbers 21 was showing us. Firstly, just as the venom of the serpents flowed through the bloodstream to burn in every part of their bodies, so sin has infected every part of us. Next, in their case and ours, death is a punishment for sin. As the people were in distress and dying from the venomous bite, so are we, so is mankind in great spiritual danger from the poison of sin. The Israelites faced physical death. In John's Gospel, all of mankind is exposed to eternal death because of sin. In both cases, it is God himself who provided the remedy. In both cases, the remedy consists of something or someone lifted up in public view. As the bronze serpent was lifted up in the camp in the sight of all the people, so the Son of Man was lifted up on a cross in the sight of the whole nation. Next, the serpent on the pole was only an image, a likeness of the thing that had poisoned them. It was not the real thing. It had no poison in itself. Just so, Christ was a man without sin. But he became sin for us. He was crucified in the likeness of sinful flesh, it says in Romans 8.3. Why was it only a model of the serpent, not a real serpent that Moses put up on the pole? Because that would have ruined the picture. That would have shown judgment being inflicted on the sinner himself, not on a sinless substitute. How perfect are the types, the shadows, the pictures of Christ that are found in the Old Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For our sake he made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Numbers, the bronze serpent itself had no power to heal. But it points to Christ, who does have that power. In Numbers, the emphasis is on physical healing, being restored to health. In John's Gospel, the purpose is spiritual healing and eternal life. And in both cases, those who looked with a believing heart are healed. The only way to gain relief was to look at the serpent on the pole. There was no other way. No other way. And so the only way for any person to find relief from the poison of sin today is to look to Christ on the cross. It has never been our efforts. It has never been our good behaviour. It has never been our religion that brings salvation. It is only ever Faith, and faith begins with that look. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We don't know how many people died from this deadly plague 
presumably many. No doubt many died before the snake was lifted up on the pole and no doubt many thought it was so ridiculous they refused to look out of principle. Maybe in a fierce determination to maintain their intellectual integrity, they refused to accept this absurd solution that was proposed for them. In the throes of agony from the fiery venom coursing through their veins, they still chose to trust in themselves rather than to look to the solution provided for them. Even though the cure rate was 100%. Don't make that same mistake. Looking to a man nailed to a cross may seem to be ridiculous, but is the God-ordained solution for sin. It's funny, isn't it? If God made salvation difficult, people would jump through hoops for it. There'd be nothing we wouldn't be prepared to do, probably, if he made it difficult for us. But he makes it easy. Look to him, look to Christ, and the poison of sin that runs through your veins will be flushed out. And yet so few want to do it. It's too easy. There must be more I need to do. The first step in freedom from sin and death is simple. Recognise your sin. Recognise it as your own sin. Own it. Don't play the victim and put the blame elsewhere. Recognise your sin. Repent of it. And look to the Lord to take it away. That's what the Israelites did. That's what we must do. Some things never change. God didn't answer their request, at least not in the way they wanted him to. He didn't take away the snakes. Yeah, we don't know what became of the snakes. The Bible never tells us that they stopped biting. Never tells us that they dispersed. We just assume that that was the case. But the Bible actually doesn't tell us that. Maybe the snakes stayed around the camp. Maybe the people had to look continually to that serpent on the pole. To be, to live, to be cured. What we do know is that we are still surrounded by the serpents of sin. And those serpents are still trying continually to bite us, to poison us. And we do know that we need to look continually to Christ for our salvation. We can never afford to take our eyes off of Him. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. In Romans 1.16, Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, Jew first and also to the Greek. Our life now depends on that look to the cross, to the Saviour who was hung on it. And our ongoing survival depends on continuing to look to the solution that was provided once for all in the cross. When I talked about how to be born again a few weeks ago, I told you that it was something that none of us can do. 
none of us can born ourselves again. That's the whole point of what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about. But I also told you that paradoxically, there is something we must do. We must believe. We must look to the cross. God doesn't believe for us. We have to do it. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus about Moses and the bronze serpent in the wilderness. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's why John wrote this passage. That's why John wrote his whole gospel. These are written, John says in John 20, 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Look to the Son of Man. That's our part. Look to him in faith. Trust him to deal with the poison of sin that flows through your veins. When we look to the Son of Man lifted up, when we see Christ crucified, we see our sin laid on him. We see him counted as a sinner in our place. We see him treated as a sinner in our place. We see him punished as a sinner for our redemption. When we see the Son of Man lifted up, we see our sins carried by another so that we no longer need to die from the poison of sin, but instead we can live and live eternally. I wonder how long it took for Moses to make the bronze serpent to lift up on the pole. It must have taken some time. There must have been many who died while Moses was making it. Why didn't God tell Moses to say abracadabra and create one instantly, a bit like he did in Pharaoh's court when he threw his staff to the ground and it turned into a snake? I don't know the answer to that question. But what I do know is that God's timing is always perfect. He is never early. He is never late with his plans. He is always just at the right time. You see, it tells us in Romans 5, 6, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for you too, to cure you of the effects of sin, to give you life, abundant life, eternal life. And you only need to look to him in faith. If you have an illness, you don't say, I'm sick, as soon as I get better, I'll go to the doctor. That's ridiculous. It's when you're sick is precisely the time you need to go to the doctor to get the cure. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not sin that will prevent our cure. For the antidote has been designed precisely to deal with sin. Doesn't matter how long you've been a sinner. Doesn't matter how hard your heart has been in the past. 
that cannot stop you looking to Christ. It's not sin that will prevent our healing, it's unbelief. For this is the will of my Father, Jesus says in John 6.40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Hung on the cross. Look to him and be healed. There is no alternative. There is no other solution. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.